Yay! That was spontaneous and unrehearsed, by the way. Um, we were trying to peel off our grandson down in the nursery and take a little longer than we expected, but uh, that's all part of life in the, in the body of Christ, isn't it? I'm Pastor Bruce. Welcome, everybody. Good to see you on a nice, beautiful morning like this. It's gorgeous outside, and it's even beautiful inside, isn't it? Jesus is here. We're here. We're here to worship the Lord and enjoy each other's company together. Um, just a couple of quick announcements. Um, there's a harvest party planning meeting right after church in the fireside room down this way, and it's to look forward to and plan for a wonderful community outreach and in-reach for that harvest party celebration. We play games, have fun, eat some good food, enjoy each other's company, meet some new people. So uh, we need folks to plan for that, and so do plan on stopping in on there. We also have a lot of puzzles down in the fellowship hall, out on the table right by the stage. And uh, feel free to take those puzzles and do them. And if you want, recycle them, whatever you want to do. Um, we'll probably have another puzzle exchange down the road, but there's at least a dozen or more puzzles down there. Also, Jean Marie's baby shower is coming up on October the 8th after church. And there's a new members class on October the 14th, which will be a Saturday from 9 to 12 in my office for those who would like to learn more about the church. And just a reminder, the nominating committee meets next Sunday in my office, 9.30, for a very brief orientation. And anything else? Oh, women's Bible study started last week. They have our six or seven women there already. It starts at 6.15 p.m. on Tuesday nights here in the fireside room. And the theme is Christian community. And I'm sure it's not too late to jump in and be a part of that. So I just wanted to reiterate that. And we have an announcement for Love, Inc., too, I believe. So let's do that. 
hear you there. Mm -hmm. Good morning. For those who don't know, I'm Lori Hutchinson, and I'm part of Love, Inc., and the Love in the Name of Christ, which is a community-based nonprofit here in Clackamas County, and we work with churches who give donations, and those donations go to families that we serve. We're in dire need of items for our care pantry. We have plenty of toilet paper and Kleenex, but we need like shampoo, deodorant, laundry soap. We figure that we give each mom or dad probably $125 worth of uh, items to take out. That way they'll have that money to pay a bill, buy gas, or hopefully if they're not on food stamps, buy food. So our boxes are over here. Please feel free to donate, and we appreciate all you do for Love, Inc. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Thank you. All right. Well, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much. A beautiful day that you have made, and your word says let's rejoice and be glad in it. And here we are. Thank you so much for gathering us together. Thank you, Father, for your love and your grace and mercy. Wonderful to know you through Jesus and that you filled our hearts with your Holy Spirit you filled our hearts with love, and we thank you, God, that we're here to give you praise and glory now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's sing. Anybody want to read one? All right, choir. We're here to worship the Lord together, the audience of one.
else would offer his only son? Who else invites me to call him father? Only a holy God, only a holy God. Come and behold Him, the one and the only. Cry out, sing holy, forever a holy God. Come and worship the
join me in prayer. Lord, we do adore you. We do. You're amazing. You're the author of all creation. The stars at night, the planets, the moon, what we see through telescopes and other things. Lord God, the universe is incredible. It's vast. It's amazing. It's complicated. We thank you that you know each one of us in this vast space. Lord God, you love us so dearly. You cherish us. You desire to have an intimate, deep, lasting, eternal relationship with us. You made us. You made us to last, but the wages of sin is death. That's justice. You're justice because you're a holy God, infinitely righteous. And so, God, we give you thanks that you found and planned and provided the way for us to be saved, to have our sins forgiven, that Christ would die on the cross, your Son, that the Son of God would come and sacrifice to redeem us, to pay the price that even though when our bodies die, Lord God, as Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. And we celebrated that for Jim Dale yesterday. We celebrate that in our lives. Lord God, we do adore you because that is such tremendous love. Thank you so much for your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you reside in us. Thank you that you inspire and lead us and comfort us. Teach us your word, Lord God. We thank you for the body of Christ, our brothers and sisters here this morning and around the world. We love you. We love each other. And we thank you for this family. Thankful, too, that Christ is returning someday. We don't know when. But help us to be ready. Help us to be about your business, to share the good news of Jesus Christ and to live out your love for the world to see that people can ask, where do you find that hope that you have? And then, God, give us boldness to share it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I'd like to invite us to read the Apostles' Creed aloud together that will be up here. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades, and the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. <laughs> Amen. Praise the Lord. Uh, the Sunday school kids up through fifth grade are now ready. Susie's back from their trip, and Bob and Susie are feeling, Bob's feeling better. Um, we thank God for that great answer to prayer. And also, Gabe is here with the littlest 
attender of the church there in his arms. Hey, Rachel, you too. Um, but anyway, all those middle school, high school, free, feel free to go down there with them. For those of us that are remaining in the sanctuary, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 11. And we're going to read a little bit of a longer stretch. There's a couple more sermons in chapter 11 coming up. And then we're going to finally get to the chapter 12, that dramatic therefore. What do we do with all this information? That's coming up in about three weeks. Romans 11, 11 to 24. Hear now the word of the Lord. Again, I ask, did they stumble? That is, did Israel stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he'll not spare you either. Therefore, consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off, and if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut off of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? It might have been easier for us if it was a hazelnut, but that's how it goes. It's an olive tree. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word this morning. Help us to really understand what it is that Paul is conveying to us May your Holy Spirit truly brighten our spirit, sharpen our wit, give us clarity and understanding, and Lord God, application. In your glorious name's sake, we pray. Amen. I just wanted to back up briefly and highlight some of the things I said at the very beginning of the Roman series, and maybe we've forgotten it, but it's good to recoup and regather it there. And the situation in Rome is the first point in the outlines. And I'm just going to give you a brief sort of flow of the sequence of history that we see took place there amongst the Roman church and the Roman society at large. And when, the, when Jesus was born, the Jewish population in Rome was really large and very influential. A lot of even the Roman citizenry who weren't Jewish started to act and dress and attend the synagogues to become 
culturally more like the Jewish people. They really admired their ethics. They admired their dedication. There were things that they saw that weren't prevalent in their society that existed in the Jewish community, and they wanted more of what the Jews had and how they expressed it. So that was increasing all the time, and their political clout, as a result, grew. And, of course, you know what that does. It creates some kickback from all those in the power, right? So Emperor Tiberius, in about now 31 AD, or excuse me, 19 AD, kicked them all the Jews, all the Jews out of Rome. You're becoming too powerful, too influential. All of you people are out of here. So all the Jews were expelled. And then Emperor Claudius let them back in in 31 AD, and that was just before Christ's crucifixion, right? So that gives you a little bit of a timeline. Now, the church in Rome began when Jewish pilgrims came from the Pentecost, that time where the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, and then 3,000 believed. Well, many of those were in pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And when the Pentecost was over and many of them had come to faith in Jesus, they'd gone back to Rome and gone back to the synagogues and had shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with the Jewish community, and a church began there in Rome. That's how it started. In 49 AD, about 40 to 50,000 Jews were meeting in over a dozen synagogues in Rome. And there were not just Jews in those synagogues, but Gentiles as well, and they were called God-fearers. They were learning about the Lord and the Scriptures. So there were so many Jews, again, that Emperor Claudius outlawed their assembly. They weren't allowed to gather for worship just to prevent their growth. Well, the Jewish Christians and some of the Jews in the synagogues obviously fell into disagreements. The Christian Jewish community was all for Jesus, and the majority were against this, and so the synagogues create, experienced this tension and all this stress, and it created a citywide uproar, which is understandable given how many synagogues there were and how many Jews there were and the presence of the Christian community there uh, at loggerheads. In fact, Suetonius mentions a citywide disturbance, and he credits the disturbance about conflicts over Christus, or Christ. That's a historical document outside the scriptures. So, Claudius expelled every Jew from Rome in 49 AD, and that's where Priscilla and Aquila come in in the book of Acts, just to let you know. As a result, with all the Jewish and the Jewish Christian community exiled, the Gentile Christians were the only ones left, and they ran everything. And they were the teachers and the preachers and the congregants and the servants of one another. And then, so they were, you could see, a totally Gentile community with no Jews present. But eventually the Jews were let back in. The Jewish Christians returned home and they found out that now they were in a minority. The Gentile Christians had a little bit of a puffed up pride. We did fine without you, by the way. It seems like God has favored us more than you. There was an attitude issue. The church was divided. In fact, many think, and I think they're probably on the right track, that Romans was initially begun because of that division. The things that we've looked at all along the line have been to bring unity to the church, one people in Christ Jesus, without an arrogant spirit or an attitude of superiority. And so that's what we find as a, as a background here. So when Paul wrote Romans, the Jewish Christian community had already returned. They had issues with getting along with one another. They didn't feel terribly welcome and struggling a little bit to be the church. So every Christian, Paul has pointed out, has been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no difference. There's just one believing community. Old Testament, New, New Testament, all that is one 
through faith in Christ. That's what Paul's message has been all along. So let's look at the second point. Now we're going to move to what Paul writes at this point in time in Romans. It's trust God's sequence, not the times. Trust God's sequence, not the times. And we'll look at what he's doing here. He says, again, I ask. Did they, did Israel, now that you know the background, did Israel stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? And we have the tenth and last. Great Scott, no! This is the last one. The last punchy, super emotional, can't say it any stronger, not at all. He just jumps out of his chair. He's that animated. Rather, because of their transgression, they knew the law and they stepped over the line. They had violated everything that God had given them in terms of grace and mercy, salvation through faith, Jesus Christ. They rejected all of that. They transgressed what they knew. He says, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous or envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness, the Jewish community, bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? In other words, we owe God a great thanksgiving because Israel turned their back on Christ to a large extent, and the movement of missions shifted over into the hands of the Gentiles who switched the normal pattern around. Israel was supposed to be salt and light to the world. In rejecting Christ, that light went out. The salt was no longer salty. God then sought a different people on purpose who should have been receiving the news from the Israeli people. Now, through Paul and others, they are now dispensers of it. They are distributing the good news back into Israel. And we'll see how he uses that understanding later on in the tree, the tree of the olive tree and the dough. And that's what he's going to do with this. So Paul begins his tenth and last question, followed by great Scott, no, it is not too late. Israel's not toast. They're not in the dustbin of history. God has not forgotten or unchosen them. But at this sequence in time, they're on the outs, and the Gentiles are on the in. And instead of Israel witnessing to Gentiles, the Gentiles are witnessing to Israel. And that's God's plan. He wants everybody to be saved, but it's the instrument that God has chosen to use at that point in time that's in a sequence. I think sometimes because we're so clock conscious that we don't look at sequences very readily. We look at time orientation, how much time has gone by. Um, how many of us have seen the article recently where somebody working for McDonald's uh, gave away how they can serve you so fast? I didn't read it because I didn't want to know, but you know, we're all hurry, 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 go, go, go. Um, there are certain things I found out. Um, for instance, you know why we have time zones in our country? at least for now? Trains, railroads, railroads. Every town set their clock based on high noon. Of course, it depended upon what you thought was high noon. 
So it could be 11 o'clock there, 1 o'clock there, 12 o'clock there, and the railroads were pulling their hair out trying to schedule their trains when everybody in that area thought differently. So the railroad barons put their heads together in about 1880 and said, we're just going to standardize the whole thing, and they did. And later on, Congress ratified something similar to that, and here we are. It's odd, isn't it? Time is so important to us, it really is. Worship for an hour, you know, where worship, you know, back, you can go to many countries and worship can last hours. I remember the church I was at in Jerusalem, two and a half hours, and I found myself wishing I had a sack lunch. I was so hungry, starving to death by the time the service was over, and nobody warned me ahead of time. You know, they worship for two and a half hours, sometimes three. I'd have brought a snack, right? And in Africa, they'll worship until near sundown for the whole day, and then they'll, they'll say, now it's time to go because the insects will come out, you'll get malaria, so everybody's got to get indoors before the sun sets. So when is their service over? Well, it has to do with mosquitoes. When does the American church tolerate a service? Radio. Radio. Radio hour. We got used to a radio hour. Hour-long segments, hour-long shows, hour-long this. And it became sort of a mindset in our country that an hour is what we have. I, say, I share this so that you don't, you don't throw tomatoes, that's all. 80% um, of us are really impatient. 80% of us are really impatient. 96% of Americans will knowingly drink an extremely hot uh, drink or hot food that'll burn their mouth, and they know it will before they do it. They know they'll eat the hot food or drink the hot food knowing it's that hot and it's going to burn their mouth, and they'll do it anyway, 96%. Sadly, 63% of us will do it frequently. I don't understand that. In less than one minute, half of us will hang up a phone if we're on hold. 71% of us, I think it's higher now, so this has got to be an old data. 71% of us frequently drive faster than the speed limit. In fact, I think you might get run over and create road rage if you don't go over the speed limit, at least on the highway. And the younger you are, between 18 and 24, the more impatient you probably are. We are an impatient bunch. A bank chief marketing officer commented, patience may be a virtue, but it's no longer a reality. And I think that's, that's correct research. So being time conscious sometimes can lead us astray because we're not paying attention to God's sequences. We're looking at the hours, the days, the months, the years, the centuries, the millennium, all that kind of thing. So here are some questions. How long has it been since Jesus ascended back to heaven? In about 10 years, it'll be 2,000 years. 2,000 years. Does that mean that it's not true? Some people think it's been a long time. Maybe he's not coming back. 2,000 years, after all, it's a long time. That's actually a, a, a logic fallacy where it's the test of time argument. Look it up. It has no bearing, no merit. How much time passed between Abraham and Moses? 500 years. How much time passed between Moses and Jesus? 1,500 years. We can't just look at the times and the seasons. We can't judge everything based on our time-conscious world, but we need to see things in a sequential pattern. God works in vast periods of time. You know how long ago it was in history that we're guessing now? See if I can find it. How much time passed from Adam and Eve's sin to the birth of Christ? 
How long? Yeah, remember in Genesis 3, he promised a Savior would come. How many years passed before Jesus was born? Now, this is a real guess. Nobody knows for sure, but it's somewhere between 4,000 and 6,000 years. God works in sequence. God does not care what 2023 or 2024 is exactly. He works in time, but he's not trapped by time. And I think we just need to realize that it's always God's timing that matters. For instance, one of my favorite verses is Romans 5, 6. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. What does Paul say? At just the right time. Four to 6,000 years later, at just the right time. It's always God's perfect timing. So if it's been 2,000 years since the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus, how long will it be before Christ returns? How many of us have thought really soon? Very, very, very soon. Because we're looking at the circumstances, we're looking at the times, but isn't it true in Scripture that we're supposed to be watching all the time? Isn't it true in Scripture that we're supposed to be ready always? Right? That's what we do. And we know what we should be doing even if we don't know when Jesus is coming back. It could be right now, and I'd be okay with that. It could be tomorrow. It could be in a thousand years. It could be in four thousand years. But it is a guaranteed sequence right out of the Bible that God is at work, and when the timing is right, it happens. And only God knows. And we just trust him with this. So Gentile Christians in Rome thought at the time that Jews, because of circumstances and appearances, were on the outs with God. There was no hope for them. They're now the unchosen people of God. Well, those people. They did not appreciate God's sequence and what God is doing and their role in it. Instead of pushing the Jewish community off with one hand, Paul says, please embrace them like I'm trying to do. Help them see the meaning, purpose, and hope you have in your life and the love you have for each other so that they want what you have. And let me ask us all a question. If you look at the history of the Christian church, how have we done? Not so great in many cases, wonderfully in other cases, but we want to be able to reach out to the world around us that they could be drawn. We can salt their food, right? We can encourage them to come to faith in Jesus. 11 and 14 verses. Salvation has come to the Gentiles, and there is a purpose, to make Israel envious. In the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people, Paul himself is a Jewish Christian who is tasked by God to share the good news with Gentiles to envy and save some of them. The believers are salt and light in the world, and we're here to make the world thirsty. We're here to shed the light on Christ, the magnifying God for people to realize and recognize more clearly who God is, His righteousness, His holiness, His grace, His mercy, His compassion, and His love. That's what we need to tell the world. In the second century in Christian history, the Christian growth throughout the Roman Empire, especially Roman and Carthage, Carthage, was really taking off. The church was growing dramatically. And in the Roman world then, they were increasingly aware of the Christian faith and Christians in their cities, and they were increasingly suspicious. Because today, we'll eat the body and drink the blood of Jesus. 
And they took it literally. Now, we see it figuratively, symbolically. This is my blood poured out for you, that kind of thing. They took it literally, and they thought we were cannibals. What kind of weird secret things are happening? If a child went missing, you know who they suspected might have abducted them and ate them? The Christian community. We're also called atheists because we rejected all the pagan gods, Zeus and Hermes and all those sorts of things. And there was all kinds of stuff going on, and there was all kinds of wild and crazy insinuations, slander, misrepresentations that weren't fact-checked. They were just taken for granted. Rumors were wild. So in that second century, a leader in Carthage in North Africa, whose name was Tertullian, wrote a defense of the Christian faith so that the people could see for real what we're all about. And in that writing, he wrote this. It is mainly the deeds of love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See how they love one another, they say. For they themselves are animated by mutual hatred. They don't have the love of Jesus Christ in their heart for one another. And that, that's why they hate us, is what he's saying. How they, the Christians, are ready even to die for one another. We are willing to sacrifice for each other, love one another. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love is sacrificial. We wash feet. All those things were so contrary. Pride was the, was the pinnacle of every Roman's desire, and the church was filled with humility and love. And the Roman society didn't value it, and they thought very little of us. And so what he's saying is, you know what's really bothering you folks out there in the world and why you don't like us and why you're saying the things you are? It's because we have a love for one another that you don't have, and it bothers you. And that love comes from God. He goes on to say, they say, for they, the pagans themselves, will sooner put to death. In other words, they'd rather kill us than put up with all that love. So he's saying this is the source. John 13, Jesus said, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so that you must love one another. By this, all men, even those Romans and Carthaginians, will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Tertullian said, that's what bothers people so much. A love for one another and the Lord they don't have. And we can share that with the world around us and love them too. Because I think love, in the scripture, is one of the salts that God says we're to be salty with. You can look at 1 Corinthians 13, 4-8, often read at marriages. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. In other words, you don't bring up stuff that's been worked through and forgiven like some uh, weapon. You let it go. If it's been forgiven. It's been dealt with. You just let it go. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Do you think that the world's a little thirsty for that? I do. I really do. There's wonderful traits there, and that's what Jesus says. When we put that love into our own lives as a church, 
in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in the workplace, the people will say, look at how they love one another. And why would you care? Why would you bother? Where does your attitude come from? That's an open door. And we can share with them. Today, the nation of Israel is among the least religious countries on earth. And then we've talked about that before. But God has not given up on them. There's still a sequence. They have not been dropped from the sequence. There has always been a remnant of believers since Genesis chapter 3. And there still is today. So what's God's sequence? Well, he chose Israel to be a nation of priests. Holy, set apart for God's service. That's what God intended. And you can read that in Exodus 19, verse 6. That is their role, to be the priests for God before the world, to be a light to the world, to share that we're saved by faith, that God is a God of mercy and grace and love, to share people with people the means of salvation is from God and not by works, not by some legalistic pursuits. That was their message. And God said, you're called to do this. They're not called and saved. They're called to be a messenger. And some of them are, in fact, saved, the remnant. 1 Peter 2.9 uses the very same language for Christians and Jewish Christians. But you are a chosen people. We are chosen people. We are also a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are a people belonging to God. Why? So that we may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Aren't you glad? I'm really glad God called me out of darkness into his wonderful light. I'm really glad that God is a part of my life and I'm a part of God's world and creation. I'm really glad that my sins are forgiven. I'm really glad. How about you? And the world is thirsty. How do we know God loves us? How do we know that God loves us even when we mess up? How do we know how to love one another? How do we know how to love our kids? How do kids know how to love their parents? That's hard. I remember Jenny's friend once called her on the phone. Is it okay to murder your children? <laughs> you know, we go through stuff like that. But as a believer, you know, there's a way forward, and it's not always easy. But, you know, it's not done by pick yourself up by your bootstraps. You can do a better job. Pick up a self-help book at the bookstore. I'm not saying there's not some good, helpful things there, but you know what? At the end of the day, what is inside? What is inside? How is the heart functioning? Is it full of love or is it full of duty, walking on eggshells, struggle, intellectual you know, willpower? The motivation for everything we do is the residence of the Holy Spirit that pours out God's love into our hearts and it overflows and it overflows into the world around us. That's the key and people without Jesus don't have that. And we can't forget that and assume that that's the case. Let's let them see the love of God in us, through us. And that'll take all kinds of different appearances, but let's be aware of it and recognize there's a huge thirst for love. There's a lot of false information out there about uh, the Christian faith. I think the world thinks we're just another religious organization with rules and regulations and how we operate and what we require of one another and all that kind of stuff. And the thing that they don't seem to keep at the forefront of their minds, see how they love each other. That's amazing. And we don't even have to have a beer in our hands or a TV show on or anything else. We can 
But you know what? Without love. It's just a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal, Paul writes. It's just a bunch of noise. Love, God's love, which is sacrificial, is key. How does Paul start off talking about husbands and wives? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because Christ has submitted. Did you know that? Christ has submitted to us. What does that mean? Should we fire the pastor? That sounds heretical. What does that mean? To submit means I want to do what's in your interest for your sake. I want to meet your need. That doesn't mean I can boss Jesus around, but who died on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins? That's sacrificial love. That's a submissive desire to meet my need, to be right with God, and he did it for us. Think about the implications. How can we be submissive to the needs around us without being doormats, without being wimps, without being so humble that we're just not to be seen and we hang our head in shame? That is not what it means to be submissive. It means how can I make love shine in your life and meet your needs right now? That's what the world is thirsty for. And I don't think they're finding it. And that's what Tertullian said. They don't have it, and they hate it. But the Spirit of God is alive. So Israel's loss, the majority rejection of Christ, has led then to an evangelism, a witness beyond that group that should have been doing it as a whole. And now the Holy Spirit is sweeping into the Gentile world until the point in time where the number of Gentiles is full. And we'll find out more about that later. This is a time frame that we don't know how long that time frame will last, but it is a sequence. And at the end of the day, Christ will come and Jews will turn to Jesus. Verse 15, if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? You know what life from the dead means in the New Testament? I'll bet you can guess. Resurrection. It's mentioned 47 times. 46 of them are all about the resurrection. So what I see here is a sequence. When the Jewish community finally turns their eyes to Jesus, when will Christ be coming? I think that'll be the moment. Somewhere either right then or right after, there's a big movement. Jews turn to Christ in, a, in the number that God intends. I'm not saying the entire nation part, you know, as a whole. That's not necessarily the way it means. But the majority or God's intended purposes are fulfilled. Then there's the resurrection from the dead. That's what Paul's saying. There's a sequence there. So when I look at the world around us and people think, well, Jesus could be coming any moment, and some people are really wound up about it, I think, why is the time we're in more dire and more full of alert sign, you know, signs and symptoms than it was before, and now I'm more ready than I was before? I should be ready all the time. I should be ready all the time. All right. Praise God. He's got a sequence. Aren't you glad you're in it? I am. I'm so glad that we're in it. And we've got brothers and sisters all around the world. It's amazing. It's so cool. The root of salvation for both Jew and Gentile is just one person. That is Christ. The root of salvation is Christ. Now we're going to get into the dough and the olive tree. Verses 16 to 24. If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, which means set apart for God, 
dedicated to God's service, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, Gentiles, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You'll, be, you'll say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Well, granted, yes, that's true. But they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid or be humble. Be in awe of God. For if God didn't spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you. Provided that you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut off of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Now, I know at first you read this and you go, what? And there's a lot of weaving and bobbing and grafting and breaking off and wild branches and natural branches. And then there's this brief comment about the dough, D-O-U-G-H. And I want to just talk about what that dough is first in brief because he doesn't spend a lot of time on it. But I think it's just another illustration of the point that he's making. So let's, let's look at the dough first. The literal meaning of the dough has to do with first fruits of the harvest. And you would make cakes from that dough from the grain harvest and you would offer a first fruits or 10% the tithe to the Lord wholly dedicated for God's service. It's like giving here in the congregation. We give to the Lord for his service. And that's what they did. And when they did that, it also made the entire grain harvest holy. In other words, it was understood this is all a gift from God. It belongs to God and we're stewards of it. And so when we offer God our tithe, our first fruits, we're saying, we know, Lord, that it all belongs to you. Use this for your great work. And that's what they're talking about here, the dough. So if they offer the dough in faith, then all of the grain harvest is holy. Now, then he goes on and he talks about its metaphorical meaning. He's not literally talking about let's make cakes. He's talking about the patriarchs, the dough, the initial sort of seedbed for the entire people of God. And that would be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs. Those are the dough. And he, they're called by God to faith, and God declares that faith, trust in God, is the means of their righteousness, saved by faith, not by works. And that saved by faith is the underlying means that impacts everything in Israel's history and our own lives today. So all who believe, as Abraham believed, Paul says, are children of Abraham, Jewish or not. By faith, that is part of that dough. So there's not two batches of dough. I think one of the bigger mistakes is that God has a, a pathway of salvation for the Jews and a pathway of salvation for the Gentiles. The Jews are saved by doing good works, following the law, doing all the temple rituals, etc., 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 and the Gentiles are saved by faith by God's grace. And that's not true. 
Jews, Gentiles, every person since Adam and Eve, and there were no Jews, right? Everybody was one people. We're all sons and daughters of Adam, right? He wrote in Romans. So everybody needs the same means of salvation, and that would be Jesus, who is the root of the olive tree, and that theology there, the messages, were saved by faith, saved by faith. Gentiles, you have no reason to brag. You're saved by faith. Jews, you have no reason to brag. You're saved by faith. We're all one. The root of the olive tree, then, is the patriarch's message to all of us. Saved by faith, not by works. There's even evidence that there's a synagogue in Rome, and it's, they named that synagogue of the olive. The olive, was, the olive tree is associated with Israel a lot in the Old Testament. Not all the time, but frequently. And so, later on in Galatians, you can read this in Galatians 3, Paul says, the scripture, the Old Testament, foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel, isn't that something? He announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you, so those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. That's really the theme of Romans. We're saved by faith from first to last. Salvation by God's grace. John 4, Jesus was talking to the woman at the well, and she's curious, and she's a Samaritan, and they worship on Mount Gerizim, and the Jews worship in Jerusalem, and she was curious as to where the proper place to worship would be, and she thought the Messiah would come. And they had that quasi-Jewish tradition in their, their mindset and the, the Bible and all that. And she says to him, what do you think about all this? And he says this, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship, the Jewish people worship what we do know. They've been chosen with special information from God. They've been given this privilege. Salvation is from the Jews. Now, I want you to pay close attention. Did he say salvation is for the Jews or from them? This is God's sequence. They're chosen people, holy priesthood, meant to be God's salt and light to the world around them, to tell people you're saved by faith, not by works, that God is a God of loving kindness. He's long-suffering, patient, kind, all the attributes of God. The means of salvation is by the grace of God through faith in the Messiah, the promised one in Genesis 3. That was their message, and they failed in large part. They kept turning in, turning in, turning in. And if you look at the Old Testament history, God kept dynamiting them out, dynamiting them out, blowing them out, scattering them throughout the world because they didn't want to do it on their own. I don't want God to dynamite us out. I think we're going to do better than that. But praise God, now we have been given the privilege of knowing from the Jews the truth, saved by faith. Thank God for grace. We have a Messiah we love. Then the natural branches, of course, were those that grew up in the olive tree of faith, and that would be the Jewish descendants of, of Abraham. However, God broke off those branches that didn't believe. They were trusting in their own works righteousness, and God said, that's not the message you're supposed to bring to the world, so he broke them off. And he grafted some wild ones in. Any wild Christians this morning? Yeah, a little wild. Jenny's wilder than I am. Um, what he's saying is, 
it's not a natural sequence that the Gentiles would be the witnesses now in reverse to the Jewish community. It's not a natural sequence of events, but it is still part of the sequential plan of God to reach the world. And that's what's happening now in our time. We're wild olive branches grafted into that family of faith to be children of Abraham. So the olive tree, I think, teaches us two truths. First, there's only one root. Only one. Jews don't have a different one. Gentiles don't have a separate one. There's just one root, and that is salvation by faith in Christ. Galatians 3, 28, 29, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Praise God. And then in Revelation, it's really interesting. Remember the, the multitude of people that John the Revelator had in a vision? For those of you that are familiar with Revelation, he sees this vision of heaven. And he, what he doesn't see are dividing lines. Jews on the left, Gentiles on the right. Okay. That is not what he sees. What he sees is one body in Christ. Look at what he wrote. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. Palm branches were symbols of victory. Not our victory, but the victory of Jesus. White robes means forgiveness. No sin, no stain, no darkness. Everything is wonderfully righteous with God's blessings, making us righteous through Christ. We're all one people. There is no, I saw the Jews over there, and I saw the Gentiles over there. There's just one big multitude, and that's because the root is the same. It's a great gift. And then it talks about eternal security. All who believe the good news of Christ are saved. And it is Jesus who holds us secure. Now, what about verse 21? Does that suggest that you could lose your salvation? You could read it that way and say, oh boy, I could be in and out and in and out and in and out. Now, does that fit any other message you've read in Scripture? I don't see that anywhere in old or new. What we're seeing is something very similar to a remnant amongst Israel. There's an Israel that's the nation. Then there's an Israel that's a believing remnant who believe in Jesus. There is the church. And then there are those within the church who believe in Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is, don't take for granted that you went through confirmation or baptism or a membership class or anything else, what really matters is, or that you imagine yourself to be a Christian, like the man in the VA hospital years ago when I worked as a nurse, I had to fill out a form, and one of the questions was religious preference. And I'll never forget it. The man really thought about it. He said, well, I'm not Catholic. Protestant? And he, it was a question. Like, what other category is there? I don't know. I'm not that, so I must be the other one. So, okay, Protestant. Well, who might argue? Some people imagine themselves to be right with God. Remember what Jesus tells a group on the judgment day? I never knew you. And they said, but we did this, and we did that, and we, we thought we knew you, and we were serving you, and we helped all these people. And he says, yeah, but I never knew you. What's the problem? 
They didn't have faith. Their faith was rooted in themselves and what they'd done as opposed to what Christ had done for them. And they're called out at the end. It's good to see that what Paul is saying is don't be arrogant and so prideful that you miss the point. We're all saved by God's grace through faith in Christ alone, Jew or Gentile. So as a church, it's good time at this moment in Romans to ask ourselves, have we got the living faith in Jesus Christ or do we have religion? I want to have that living, enduring faith. All those the Father gives me, Jesus said, I'll never let go. You cannot be lost once you've been found. You cannot be unsaved and unchosen, unelected, uncalled. That would be uncalled for. <laughs> That'd be wrong. There's nothing in the Bible that says anything short of the fact that when Christ adopts us, remember the adoption sermon? If you're adopted by your father in the Roman society, you have more rights than a natural child. A natural child can be exiled and cut out of the will, totally removed from the family, given nothing at all. But if you adopt a child, they're guaranteed an inheritance and you can't back out. I'm adopted twice. All of us are adopted at least once, if we know Jesus, right? Paul says, make sure you have a living faith. That's the message he's bringing us. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul writes, because it's the power of God, not ours, the power of God for the salvation of everyone who what? Believes, trusts, has faith. First for the Jew, there's a sequence, and then for the Gentile, nobody's forgotten. Praise God. I just want to take a moment before we come to communion. Um, if you want to just have that special time with God, if you're already a believer, say, praise the Lord, I love you so much. Thank you for loving me. And if there's a sin that's troubling you, it's time to confess it and make it right with God. And then if you're wondering, you know, am I in, am I out? Am I in the wild olive branch? Am I in, am I in that root of Jesus by faith? It, and you want to do that today? Hey, today's a beautiful day to do it. Um, don't need to raise your hand, don't need to come forward, don't need to pay any money, don't have to tell me afterwards. I like to know, but you don't have to because it's not by works you're saved, it's by faith. I want you all to have faith, but I can't give it to you. It's something only the Holy Spirit can do. So I just want to pause for a moment, and if the Holy Spirit sweeps through our church today, yay! I know the Holy Spirit's alive and active, so let's just let that be, and let's enjoy the presence of the Lord for a few minutes before we come to the table. Father, it always strikes me that I'm never this quiet, it seems like, with you. But it's good to have quiet time. Chance to personally thank you. And to listen.
Father, thank you for your, your Holy Spirit that breathes life from above, births a living spirit in us. And Lord God, you desire both Jew and Gentile to come to you in faith, to know that by your grace they are saved. And here we are. And I pray that as we come to the table, not a one of us will feel unworthy. Not a one of us will wonder what we need to do to make you happy with us. The only work you ask us to do is simply to believe, to trust our lives and our eternal lives to you by having trust and faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross, was buried and raised from the dead and is coming back someday. His death means the freedom from sin and the consequences of it. And Lord God, his resurrection is the assurance that that was effective and that we have eternal life forever, secured. Thank you so much for your love, and we do adore you. As we come to your table, bless each one, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, after giving thanks to the Heavenly Father, he took bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you do this, you do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took a cup and he said, this is a new covenant. This is so fascinating to me. Seven covenants in the Bible. Six in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. This is the only one out of all of them that assures our salvation. The only one. It's a new covenant, Jesus said, sealed in my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. As often as you do this, you do this in remembrance of me. It's a gift from God, and you're all invited. If you're a guest this morning, and you're not sure, how, how do you do this? I've been in churches where I had the same question on my mind, sitting in the pew, what do I do and how is it done? And we just come in the middle, and on two rows come down the center, there's some gluten-free or as close as we can get here in the middle, and then we just go around both sides, and there's bread on both tables and cups beyond, and then a receptacle, I think, not. I will get some um, on either end. We'll grab some real quickly. Um, and then you just drop it into those receptacles as you're finished, and then just head back to the pews and enjoy the time with the Lord. The praise band will be singing. You can sing along with them. You can sit there quietly. You don't have to come up if you don't feel moved to come up. Nobody's going to elbow you. We won't single you out. This is really heartfelt love to come. And it's a heartfelt invitation of love that God says, yes, come. So as you're ready, come. Got one.
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. 
and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Uh, just a quick recap. There's a meeting right after worship for the uh, harvest party planning. I hope you'll stop by and do that in the fireside room. Also, there's a lot of puzzles out on the tables in the, on the fellowship hall. I don't want to have to keep them in my office. So, so whether you brought one or not, take one and use it, enjoy it, and then bring it back to the next exchange. And, yeah, and this is all part of just family having fun together. Right. So we hope that you'll enjoy that and come yeah. on down to the fellowship Winter hall. is coming, so we might as well do a puzzle, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, well, may the love of the Father and the sacrificial, dra- gaze, <laughs> sacrificial grace of Jesus Christ. I've had two Sundays in a row, everybody. This is just really weird. And the, <laughs> and the wonderful fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now, God's people could say, Amen. And Jean Marie, we're going to have a nice wedding shower for you next Sunday after baby church. Shower. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> baby shower, baby shower. Not wedding shower. I need a nap. <laughs> Definitely. God bless. Mm-hmm.